0: Today's swap number is 124. That's the number of CBA grievances we currently have on the books. This is a continuation of our conversation with Captain Seth Cornblum, Contract Admin Chair, from a couple of weeks ago.
1: Nine, to go, one through right, clear for takeoff. up.
0: We said that there were 124 grievances open currently. How many of you filed this year?
1: Uh, this year we filed approximately 55.
0: And I know there's there's several steps that happen between the filing of a grievance and the end of the road, if you will. The end of the road is more or less the SBOA, correct? That is correct. How do you decide when to take a case to an
1: SBOA? You know, we look at that very much as a case of uh, triage. You know, who's bleeding the worst? Who needs the, the help most critically and how fast? So... Somebody who's been terminated, for instance, in a discipline issue, they obviously come to the top of the stack and uh, we try to help them as soon as possible. Because in, in the triage context, they're obviously the most severely injured, the most severely harmed. Um, other than that, as far as a contractual compliance issue, what we're looking at is what issues affect the most number of pilots you know is it is it a relatively small issue is it only a particular subset of pilots or is it the entire pilot group and that's going to help drive our decision making as far as which case goes to sboa and when
0: in, in that sort of that same vein is um do you take every case to sboa
1: no we we do not uh for that matter we don't process every grievance that pilots bring to us and actually. That's one of the, my least favorite parts of this job is having to say no to one of our pilots. And uh, sometimes the, the facts just don't back up the pilot's claim or the CBA language really doesn't support the pilot's claim. Uh, so some grievances we don't even file initially. And then other cases, we just can't well, once we get once we get down the road, we can't get them to SBOA because the fact pattern maybe has a problem or a new evidence comes to light that would make us uh, withdraw the case uh, from uh, going down the SBOA track.
2: So, Seth, uh, how many SBOAs do we typically do a,
1: a month or a year? You know, our goal and what we're budgeted for is to do 10 to 12 a year. However, we continue to run into uh, problems getting these scheduled uh, as far as with what the company will agree to. The company delays us quite a bit. We have many disagreements uh, between us and the company as far as the scheduling of SBOAs. You know, we, we have arguments over when to have a case in front of which arbitrator and other details. And that really slows us down. Um, it's particularly frustrated. Just as one example, uh, you know, this year uh, and many pilots might not even know this yet, but uh, we believe that the uh, pay for 2019 CQT is wrong for Surprise. nearly every, <laughs> right. right? Right. For nearly every pilot, uh, if they had a quality of life preference and if they had only a three day pull for a four day event, Uh, We believe all pilots in that situation, uh, or at least the vast majority, suffered uh, improper pay. And so we were trying to take that case to arbitration in July. You know, we started out earlier in the year with a couple meetings with the company, really trying to resolve it at the lowest level, giving them every opportunity to settle it without an expensive and time-consuming arbitration. But um, there was arguments over, there were arguments over which uh, arbitrator you're the case in front of. And we thought in July we had a good one. We had an arbitrator who has previously worked with a CQT, AQP type issue. And in fact, has even uh, ruled against SWAPA once before. So we thought, okay, the company should agree to this because clearly the arbitrator doesn't have a bias. He's already ruled against us once. He's not in
2: our favor, right? Necessarily. (laughs) Right,
1: right. Uh, But instead, the company took the position that, well, since the arbitrator ruled against us last time, he, quote unquote, owes us one this time. And so we were very frustrated because the schedule worked out well. That arbitrator had experience in the topic and uh, we thought he was pretty impartial, pretty fair. And yet we could not get the case scheduled. So now we've had to push that case all the way back to January of next year. You know, so some pilots will have suffered a pay loss for a full year before we even get the case in front of an arbitrator. And in fact, if it goes all the way that far to the arbitrator, it'll be months after that before we even have the arbitrator's ruling.
0: How long does it take between the time that, it, like, let's say you do go to an SBOA, how long, how long can it take to get a verdict back?
1: Oh, months. <laughs> Many months. Wow. It's, it's, it's quite a long process. So what SBOAs are planned for the rest of the year? So uh, we were trying to get a uh, case about sick accrual. We, be- we believe that the company is not... Uh, calculating sick bank accrual properly.
2: Well, that's been in the case instances. for years, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. And it's uh, limited. Uh, the, the grievance, though, is limited uh, in scope to just uh, a couple particular situations, usually involving involuntary premium flying, JAs, and also uh, involuntarily uh, reassigned legs into uh, the PP code. And uh, we were trying to get that scheduled in November. And man, we can just get a get the company to agree to any of the arbitrators that are available. So that case, unfortunately, is not going to happen this year.
2: So, uh, Seth, we were talking earlier, and one thing that you mentioned uh, as we were getting ready for this podcast was how sometimes a settlement is often better than getting an arbitration ruling. Is that true?
1: Uh, Oftentimes it is. um, And it's not a matter of us being afraid to go to the SBOA. Um, We're not going to go to SBOA unless we're confident in our facts. So we wouldn't even start down that track if we thought we had a bad case. But uh, one thing the arbitrator cannot do is what's known as gap filling. In other words, the arbitrator cannot put in language where none exists. So the example I like to use is a case that we had involving duty day violations where unrealistic connection times were a factor. Unrealistic connection times were used to mask duty day violations. And so we had great facts and, uh, I believe we absolutely would have been victorious at the SBOA, but the issue is the arbitrator would have just been able to rule. Yes. Swappa, you're right. Or no swap you're wrong. But he was, he would not be in a position where he'd be able to dictate the company must give you X number of minutes to call a connection reasonable. They can't really do that. And so in that case, a, a victorious ruling from the arbitrator might not have really been that useful. It would have been a hollow victory, right? Basically, yeah. But it felt good, but, you know, not really been useful to our pilots at the end of the day. So a better way to go was to try every opportunity to try to mediate and settle um, so that we can get guidelines that both sides can use. And I think beneficial to both sides so that there's no more future dispute over what's CBA compliant for realistic and what's not.
0: What, what happened with that case?
1: So we ended up uh, working out a settlement uh, several days into the SBOA. Uh, The uh, arbitrator, of course, as usual, tries to get the parties to come together on an agreement, oftentimes throughout the hearings. And uh, we were able to do that. And we uh, crafted a settlement.
2: And it's worth pointing out, though, that we had already paid for that SBOA. So the money that we spend on that, was we could have gotten an agreement long before we spent money.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And And that's especially frustrating because, you know, we were talking about situations where Uh, The company was using negative connection times, you know, giving a pilot a reassigned schedule where he'd only be able to execute it if he had a DeLorean to get (laughs) from gate to gate. And it's ridiculous to spend that kind of money when you're arguing over something so unrealistic and so obviously flawed. And
2: that- that negative number wasn't just to make a connection to, for uh, a deadhead flight. That was for legality purposes. True?
1: Uh, you know, oftentimes it was from uh, operating one flight to operating another flight. That's right. And so when the pilot would look at the reassignment, uh, the way CWA is configured, it would mask the, uh, the actual projected duty day. Which in times could make an illeg- illegality. Oh, absolutely. Not only a CBA uh, legality issue, but we even found cases of FAR FTP problems. And so now you're talking about putting a pilot's own certificate in harm's way. And uh, honestly, even the company in harm's way, because there's that joint responsibility for FAR 117 compliance. And this one we tried resolving. We went all the way to uh, the VP of Light Ops. Um, we, we urged them to meet with us. And uh, we had that meeting and yet the issue still was not fixed. So we had to go all the way to SBOA and only partially through the SBOA proceedings were we able to come up with, uh, with an agreement.
0: So I know a lot of these are addressed in the contract admin tip of the week, but tell us about some of the other hot button issues you guys are
1: facing today. Uh, well, uh, Deadhead Preboard uh, continues to be a source of frustration for us. This is something we grieved early in 2018 and we thought we had a settlement, which let me back up a second. The fact that we had to grieve... This, in the first place, is ludicrous. The contract's very clear. Pilots get to pre-board on deadheads. It's plain and simple. It's been like that Yeah. And it's been that way for a long time. That's not new language. So uh, we had to grieve in 2018 and uh, had to even go as far as scheduling an SBOA, which, again, as you pointed out earlier, is, you know, wasteful in time and money. And uh, days before the proceedings, we were able to get a, a settlement that confirmed, lo and behold, guess what? Pilots get the pre-board. Just like the contract says. <laughs> yeah, who knew? So, um, so that was a frustrating thing to have to go all the way to SBOA, and we got to stop just shy of the proceedings. But then we found out that, uh, turns out, the company still was not getting pilots consistently pre-boarded. And that just blew our mind, because we shouldn't have to train the company on how to comply. It should be just our job to say, this is the contract you agreed to, and we expect you to make good on it. But after the settlement and we realized there was noncompliance, we really had to get into the weeds to try to help the company figure out how to comply. And th- that's just a silly thing for us to have to do. But unfortunately, you know, if that's the path to compliance, that's going to that's going to lead to the most contractually compliant experience for the pilot. then that's what we have to do. And uh, that issue, uh, like I said, it's still going on. Where we're really running into uh, some frustrations, we found that on an oversold flight, pilots are running into more difficulties because uh, the company's computer systems that they use at the gate will not print out a boarding pass for a must ride if all the customers have already checked in and the flight's full. We're running into situations where ground ops is telling pilots they have to wait for a volunteer to give up a seat or wait till 10 minutes prior to departure uh, so they can 10 minute rule a customer and deny boarding to a customer. And, you know, the contract is very simple. It does not make any allowances or exceptions for oversells. It says pilots will pre-board. will There was a period of time under that settlement where, and we're still in that time period, where when issues happened and pilots were not allowed to uh, pre-board per the settlement, that the company would uh, make a payment to the pilot for his inconvenience, pay 1.0 TFP. And then when we started seeing noncompliance and realizing that in these oversold situations, the pilot was going to have a problem almost every time, the company claimed that the oversold situations are somehow exempt from the settlement payments. And that really took me aback. Uh, I I find that uh, disingenuous at best. Uh, That really left a bad taste in our mouths. And, And when we tell our pilots what management has told us about Uh, their claim during the oversold flights, it really frustrates our pilot group. Uh, now the good news is, uh, we've continued to push and we've continued to, uh, try to affect change as best as we can. And the company has taken some steps, uh, towards improving the process and getting them towards compliance. The customers, the company is spinning it as better customer service. Uh, but really it's compliance that's really what it is. Uh, Compliance is good customer service, but they're trying to say it's not a contractual compliance issue. And we very much obviously disagree. So in October, uh, the company is going to go ahead and launch automatic check-in of your flight. So hopefully as soon as the deadhead flight is booked for the pilot, via the normal scheduling processes, the deadhead uh, uh, pilot will also be automatically checked in, which hopefully gives him a leg up on getting that boarding pass. And so the pilot can just go on his mobile device, and, uh, get that boarding pass generated. And so he won't have any issues. However, in a situation where the flights already oversold, we're still back to square one and we're still trying to get the company to make a commitment to fix the automation accordingly. And we're still waiting for an answer.
0: Uh, so you said you kind of brought this up a little bit, but let's talk a little bit about some of the, uh, recent, uh, accomplishments that your department has, has gone through.
1: Sure. Um, you know, we've had, uh, uh, many small issues, you know, again, we, we try to handle pilots problems every single day, you know, with their phone calls and emails, and we recover pay often, and we solve a lot of day to day scheduling issues. But as far as bigger, more high profile things, uh, some things that come to mind, uh, fixing the uh, po- the uh, deadhead situation for pilots who call in sick online. Uh, The contract said that uh, pilots in those situations were to be afforded positive space travel. Now, just to be clear, positive space is a lower priority than must ride. Well, it turns out the company's automation was never programmed to allow for positive space. It was never thought of when their new system was implemented. And so pilots that would call in sick online and were just trying to get home while they're sick uh, were basically put on a standby list. And that is completely non-compliant.
2: Well, and think about it. This was probably written 20 years ago when load factors were 55%. And if there was positive space, you were going to get on the flight. Nowadays,
1: it's not guaranteed. Right, right. And, and even, and that's a great point about, uh, you know, the, the the state of the current loads. But positive space was technically never a guaranteed seat. In the event of an oversell, you could still get removed from the airplane. Now, considering the company had never implemented their systems correctly, we did get them to agree that all deadheads uh, for pilots calling in sick are all must-ride now. So no matter what, you're getting on the airplane. So that's a that's an improvement, and that led to the side letter too, which changed all the language to must-ride from positive space. Uh, but some other things, that uh, we spent a lot of time this year engaging with training scheduling. Uh, we found out that for a long, long time, uh, apparently training scheduling was not in compliance with some of the deadhead provisions for getting pilots to and from training, uh, in circumstances where maybe their originally booked deadhead flight had canceled, or there was a misconnect situation. We found out that, uh, actually a new hire, uh, a probationary pilots, the one that brought this to our attention. Uh, she was told, uh, when her deadhead flight had a problem, I think it canceled. She was told that, uh, before she would be given a hotel, Uh, in accordance with the contract that she was to quote unquote, exhaust all options. And those options were to include standby travel, riding the jump seat, riding, riding other airlines as crazy as that sounds. And then if she was still stuck there at the end of the day, they'd get her a hotel. And that is uh, a violation of several parts of the contract and, uh, and just plain bad customer service. And uh, I think something that would not make Herb please if he was here today. And uh, we worked with training scheduling extensively and uh, through uh, dealing with the training center management, we were able to get that fixed. So we're really happy with that. So now if a pilot's deadhead uh, from training uh, cancels or there's a, a misconnect scenario, they will now properly book a must ride on the next flight, even if they have to bump customers off, even if they have to uh, trigger an oversell, as long as the pilot calls training schedule and they'll get them rebooked properly. So that's a huge uh, win. Another issue that
2: you were talking about earlier uh, before we started the podcast was the uh earliest deadhead uh rule you're saying that that was something that you fought not too far long ago
1: that's right and that, and that uh, that argument is still or that issue I should say is still one we're discussing well with the company but uh scheduling management has decided and we don't know where they got this from that the language about returning a pilot to domicile on the earliest scheduled arriving deadhead applies only to unscheduled overnights. So and we have no idea where they got that from. And it, it's not in the contract. It's not at all. No. And we've got a long history of other documents from previous scheduling management saying that's not how this works. And the language is very clear. So that's uh, definitely frustrating to us. It, feel, it feels like they just made something up. And uh, I do believe we're close to having that worked out but we'll we'll see. But,
0: yeah. And they don't they really don't have any backup on it. No no documents that that show that they've passed practice on that or it's just literally
1: nothing that I've been shown.
0: Hmm. So, I know I know ETOPS has come up a couple of times it looks like in the grievance list. So, what are have you had any victories with that? Cuz I know there's several of those on the list.
1: Uh, well, I Amy, mean, yeah, ETOPS did create a lot of uh, work for us this year. Um, we had several issues ranging from uh, a disagreement with the company on uh, the imp- the uh, application of ETOPS locks, ETOPS vacancy locks. And uh, the good news is on that, um, I do believe we have a settlement imminent and uh, we should just have uh, a document to be signed here any day. So that's good. That That's nice to have that behind us. Uh, also, uh, the company was initially not respecting uh, TGDOs, the uh, training golden days off for initial ETOPS training, in the classroom and the simulators. And uh, we why, were, why were they not doing yeah. that? What was that? Uh, I'd love to give you a good answer. I, I They just believed they claimed that they thought it did not apply. Training golden day is off. Do not apply to training. That's what they said. Okay. So specifically
0: uh, e training only?
1: They uh,
0: or no training at all?
1: The company had made the claim that the TGGOs only applied to recurrent training, to CQT training. But we pointed out that they also use TGGOs uh, for leadership training, which is also a non-recurrent type of training. And uh, we even spoke with the negotiators that negotiated this language uh, many years ago. And, uh, you know, that language for TGGOs was basically unchanged from contract to contract. And uh, the company, should they have wanted to exclude ETOPS from TGDO applicability, they certainly had ample opportunity to do so at the negotiating table, but no attempt was ever made. So uh, anyway, long and the short of it is... Uh, Regardless of how we got to the disagreement, the good news is we were able to finally get that resolved and the company's now in compliance. Uh, Now, the frustrating part about that, again, it took months and many visits uh, over the phone and in person with the company. And one thing that was particularly frustrating, again, as we were trying to settle this case before anybody incurred arbitrator cancellation fees, you know, we're having these talks and uh, myself and one of our swap attorneys was on the phone with a company attorney and we explained one onerous provision that we really just couldn't live with and he agreed to remove it and we thought we were done. We thought we had a document that we could live with. It wasn't perfect, but it was good enough for both sides. And uh, the company attorney said he'd send over you know, the new version to reflect the change we just discussed. And the next morning when the new version came over, an entire new provision that was even more onerous than the one that we challenged was snuck in. And if there's, if there's gonna be, if we're gonna have meaningful discussions, we shouldn't be sneaking things in at the last second. And you know, if there's a last minute change that someone didn't think of, we should really point that out to each other and act in good faith.
2: Absolutely, that's yeah. the, I think the key is good faith. Yeah. Seth, thanks for coming on the podcast to give us a look at the world of grievances and we appreciate your insights. Uh, like Seth said, Swapa isn't just giving up on our problems with the company. We want these disagreements to end Almost, but not as much as we want our contract to be followed.
0: As always, we want to hear from our listeners. Drop us a line at, at swap.org and let us know what you liked, what you didn't, and tell us if you have any ideas for topics you want to see covered in an upcoming podcast.
2: And finally, today's bonus number is 50000 And that's the number that Seth mentioned is the ballpark cost of each and every arbitration case when you factor in the lawyers, the prep. Witnesses, facilities, and the arbitrator's fees.
0: And the company pays roughly the same amount as we've learned.
2: Right, so putting it into these agreements will be beneficial to both sides. And it's not just the money. Grievances and arbitration cost time and goodwill. SWAPPA understands this, and that's why we're committed to removing vague and out of date language as part of the Contract 2020 rewrite. Southwest 40, we're going
1: to right check
2: Clear to land, one through right, southwest 40.